I'm excited because tonight we've closed out our journey in uh, the letter of Jude that we've been in for the last couple months. I want to start out talking about the word strive. To strive is to fight for something, to, um, to strain towards something, uh, to endure through something, to strive. Now, in our, in our culture, there's a lot of focus on striving, on working harder, to be more productive. Even when we think about self-care, it's like, I need to do more to take care of myself. I need to strive for that. I need to become the best me. I need to strive now, one thing that is a good reality about striving is also the opposite side of the coin, the greatest difficulty with striving is that it puts a lot of importance on personal responsibility. And it is a good thing to be responsible for stuff, to, to believe that you have an active role in the story of your life uh, as it is unfolding. In fact, as we've been journeying through Jude, we've discovered much regarding personal responsibility. So this letter, if you haven't journeyed with us through this letter, Jude who authored this letter was writing this to an ancient audiences, churches throughout the ancient world. And he knew that in writing this, that he was going to have to call them to take responsibility for some certain realities happening in their midst, that they were going to have to work toward something. See, what had been going on in the life of these churches is that there had been a lot of false teachers who had slithered their way in like serpents into the life of the church. And they had zero good in mind. In fact, they wanted to cause division and disunity, spreading lies about God and actively working to infect the church with their spiritual darkness. And so Jude stresses in this letter, and it's like 25 verses. It's not super long. And over and over and over again, he stresses to them that they need to take this threat seriously. They need to contend for the faith, as he says at the beginning of the letter. Another way to phrase that is to guard the gospel in their own hearts, in their own minds, and by extension in the life of their church community. They need to actively protect what is good, what is right, and what is true, and not give room for these false teachers to operate in the shadows. Now, if I was one of the members of the ancient audience receiving this, I know that my mind would have immediately thought three things, uh, because this is typically how I approach a lot of issues, is one, I want to like try to like deny it, or kind of like, maybe it's not that big of a deal. Like, especially if it involves conflict, maybe we'll just give it some more time, and it'll take care of itself. That'd be great. So that's one. And then the second thing I would do is I would realize, man, we are, there, Jude's right. We're missing the mark here. All right, we're good. we have to do something. There's an issue. And so the third thing I would do is I'd start to get to work. I want to fix the problem. See, I have a strong striving impulse within me. And so while I don't personally uh, dream about the next time that I'm going to get corrected or coached, I'm always up for being challenged because I want to grow. I want to grow as a father of Jesus, as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor. And I'd imagine for many of you, you also strive towards probably a lot of decent or good things. But when all we do is strive, what we are doing is we are relying on some motivation, whether it's internal or external, to keep us with gas in the tank to get us through the entire time that it's going to take to follow through. So this is why when we start off the new year and it's January and we all have New Year's resolutions, 
why our New Year's resolutions fade so fast, whether it is uh, the workout plan, the eating habit, the Bible reading plan, the journal, right? Like we, those things fade because after a while, the motivation fades. So we can only strive as long as there's gas left in our motivation tank. And so as we wrap up Jude tonight, we might envision that this church and we as a church today should figure out a game plan towards guarding the gospel in our hearts and minds and in the life of our community. Like that you would get this. And uh, the way I had envisioned it, uh, because I was watching football over the weekend, was... um, was as if it is two opposing teams. So you have the, the churches, the audience being written to, uh, and we could call them a name like, we'll call them God's Chosen. Like you have God's Chosen and they're in the locker room getting a pep talk from uh, their coach, Coach Jude apparently. And uh, they're in there because the the opposing team, and we'll call them uh, Satan's Serpents, right? And like they are coming up against them. And To be honest, the Serpents have been doing a pretty good job on their end of the ball for the first half. And so you're in the locker room and you're getting uh, this speech. And it's like this letter telling them that you need to change some stuff. There's things that are very real going on that need to be improved upon. But it's not just like some some big correction moment. There's also inspiration, like any good uh, speech that you watch on a TV show or movie that involves a good locker room speech. And, And you get that motivation of the why of why you should care. And you're like, okay, we're going to go out. We're going to go do this. Like we're going to, we're going to nail all of this. It's going to be great. We're going to work hard. We're going to fix the problem. And right as we are, right as these churches getting ready to put down the letter and start getting to work, heading back onto the field, they're tying their shoes, putting their helmets back on. Right. And then Jude drops a final insight that would reshape and make you have to reevaluate all that you've discovered up till now as he had been writing. And so Jude 24 and 25 is where we'll be finishing our time tonight. Now to him, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, if you've been with us as we've been journeying through Jude, these words hopefully sound at least a little bit familiar to you because this doxology is the same blessing that we've been used over and over again during this series as we close out each of our gatherings. And uh, it, we call it a doxology because a doxology in ancient biblical writings was like a transition song or poem that's meant to serve as a reminder to God's people of who he is or what he has done as you're moving from thought to thought. So it's kind of like, here's, here's what you should be doing different or here's what you should be encouraged by. But remember, remember who God is. And then you transition. And so now it's as if Jude is transitioning the hearers from this game time, epic game time speech back onto the field. You're about to go out of here. So before you do, I need to recenter your hearts and your minds. It's almost as if God, the creator of humanity, knows all of our motivations, our desires, and our struggles better than we do. That that, that he knows that we would be tempted to when discovering our own brokenness, we'd be either tempted to either give up and call and throw in the towel or begin to strive on our own terms to make it better. And so God, 
by his kindness, guides Jude to write down these words that are going to point us as recipients of this truth to a central truth that should reshape our understanding of this entire letter. That we guard the gospel by keeping our eyes focused on the one who guards us. So how do we guard the gospel? We guard the gospel by keeping our eyes focused on the one who guards us. When Allie and I first got home from China after um, adopting Asher, uh, we were all of a sudden parents of a two-year-old. That's hard when you've never had a baby before either. Like we were so new at everything. And so, uh, and we had no clue what to do. Um, we had babysat before and Allie definitely had babysat. Um, but I didn't know what to do with a full-on toddler like every single day. It was it was bound to make mistakes, right? And so we did. We made a lot of mistakes. Um, uh, in fact, one of my my favorite mistakes, um, favorite in terms of the quantity of the mistakes that were made, um, uh, shows the favoritism of it. We, I would oftentimes play things that were just a little bit too scary for a two-year-old to watch, thinking that they weren't. If I were to name some of the stuff, you'd be like, you should have known. And I should have, but I did it, so it happened. Uh, we did know, though, that we wanted to introduce him to some of our favorite Disney movies. Fair? Fair. Okay. After being back in America for about a week or two, uh, we put Tarzan on for Asher to watch. And, uh, and, and the movie had just begun. Now, uh, when I thought of the intro to Tarzan, I was thinking of the beautiful Phil Collins song, you know? And so I was in the room, Allie was doing laundry, she was moving clothes from the washer to the dryer when all of a sudden a loud shriek happens, a tears start, and Asher is sprinting to the laundry room to Allie and burying his face into her. Because um, apparently a jaguar trying to eat a baby wasn't the best image for a two-year-old. Who knew? Now, not a parent win, right? But I love that moment, and here's why. Because Asher, in that moment, he didn't think about it. He wasn't like pondering this. He knew who we could go to to discover safety. He knew that he could look into his parents' eyes and that they would protect him and care for him and love him. Now, often there are moments in, uh, in parenting with Asher and Abby now where this just is a thing. Um, whether it's when they're scared um, and wake up, in, wake up uh, in the middle of the night with a nightmare, uh, or they have climbed too high on something they probably shouldn't have even been touching, and uh, all of a sudden they know they can't get down. And uh, uh, they know that they can either sprint to us or call out for us, assuming they're very high up, and we will do whatever we can to take them from a space of fear to a place of protection. It's like knowing that you're with your parent is supposed to mean I'm safe. And that's what this doxology serves as. That when everything is so uncontrollable and scary in our world, that we can go to our dad who is watching. And so this doxology starts with now to him. Last week, Joel was up here and he referenced the story of the prodigal sons. Uh, and so if you're not familiar with that story, it's a story that Jesus had told uh, about two sons. 
one uh, one who stays at home but is self-righteous, and another son who goes to his father, who's a rich man, and demands his part of the inheritance, effectively saying, I don't care if you're alive or dead. And he takes his finances, and he goes off to a far-off con- country, and he squanders all of it. And then in his moment of desperation, he realizes, I'm going to go back to my dad and tell him that I want to be a bond servant. I just want to be a servant in his household because maybe, maybe I can at least get consistent food and a shelter over my head if I do that. And so he comes back and says that while the father's still a long way off, the father sees the son in the distance and he begins to run. And this story demonstrates God's, the father's incredible mercy towards his rebellious son and towards his self-righteous son. Now, a pastor named Tim Keller once wrote a book that I highly recommend. It's called The Prodigal God, um, and it's based on this very parable. Except his focus on the word prodigal is about the father. The word prodigal means someone who spins extravagantly or at what at least appears to be wasteful. When the father ran out to the son, he didn't come prepared to give this son what he deserved. Punishment, abandonment, saying get lost. That's what the son deserved. He didn't give the son what he hoped for. The son, what what was his best hope? That I could become a bondservant in my dad's household. No, the father gave him more than he could have ever dared dream of. And what all the spectators around that were watching the scene would have gone, what kind of wasteful, squandering behavior is this dad doing? He says, give my return son the best of everything. We're throwing a party tonight. See, this is a beautiful portrait of our heavenly father who is complete in power and complete in kindness. See, in this story, there is one There's one figure who has the right to judge the son. It's not the servants. It's not random bystanders. It's the father. The father has the right to judge. The father alone should the son have been afraid of. And yet it is the father alone who looks out and says, my son, he was dead and now he's alive. Or as Jude would write here, that he is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now you might read that and at first think Judah saying something uh, to the effect of that we could live in a way that we never stumble in terms of sin again. That we're never going to say the wrong thing. That we're never going to hurt those we love. That is possible. And, and, and to that, we'd all be like, teach me. I want that. But see, Jude's focus in this writing of this statement, it's not on the stumbling, although that's important. His focus is on the one who brings us, who keeps us. He who is able to keep you from stumbling. This is supposed to remind us back to Jude verse one. To those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Our father has kept us for Jesus. In other words, he has called us secure. He ensures that while we aren't immediately and perfectly transformed into the very image of Jesus, we are kept in our father's loving embrace. That while we still sin on this journey, 
we will never stumble over Jesus. In 1 Peter, Peter writes about uh, this concept of stumbling. And he says that those who are opposed to God, he says those who are opposed to God, view Jesus as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That he alone is supposed to be a stumbling block. And and that kind of makes sense because to follow Jesus, Jesus isn't called to just be your new buddy. He is called to be the one who you surrender your life to completely, that you hand a blank check over to for your entire existence and he becomes master over you, that you put your faith and trust in him, not what you see, but what is un yet unseen. And so this any version of Jesus that is easy to come to, ugh, he says, if you want to follow me, you must pick up your cross daily, you must die. Because you see, He alone is also the one who is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. So if Jesus was a stumbling block, we now get to be presented blameless because we have surrendered our lives to him and put our faith in what he has done, not in what we could ever do. And in doing that, we are safe. We're safe from stumbling. See, the gospel is not good news that God ignores our sin. The gospel is not news that God ignores our sin. As if the Father ignores our gross clothes stained by sin. That we're like the, the, pro, like the, like the long away son who's returning back and clothes are all like crunchy and covered in mud. And like, it's just like gross, right? And they're like, you're smelling. And you're like, I don't even want to be near me. I, like, this is just bad. It is not love for the Father to just go, yeah, you're good. No, no, that's not God's mercy. What God's mercy does is he takes off those robes. Those robes that stay so bonded, those robes of sin that we can't, we can't stop from living in. His mercy is his effectiveness to be able to remove those clothes. And then he says to the servant, go grab one of my royal garments and put it over him. Put it over her. This one is mine. In the scriptures, followers of Jesus are often described as individuals who've been clothed with the righteousness of God. See, on the cross, Jesus' mercy was demonstrated as he took our gross sin, uh, scarred on himself, and his grace was on display as he took his royal, spotless, flawless robes, and he put those on us. So he alone calls us blameless. He alone has the right to call us blameless. I don't have the right and neither do you to say about ourselves that we are somehow better than we are. But get this, he calls us blameless and he's not even reluctant to do it. It's not that he's ticked that we wasted his time and now he's out of breath because he had to run all the way to us. It's not that he's like tapping his foot in the sand and like there's like a, a, a cartoon dust storm coming up around him, right? He calls us blameless with great joy. Now, joy can be defined in a ton of different ways, but uh, I love the way that Dr. James Wilder explains it um, in a perspective that is both rooted in biblical understanding and in uh, neuroscientific understanding. He, He simply defines joy as this. Joy means we are glad to be together. Joy means we are glad to be together. 
See, joy has the ability to transcend all circumstances because it stands apart from every circumstance except one. That you are with someone whom you enjoy and you experience their enjoyment of you. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is giving a blessing to the people of Israel and he prays over them. He says, in part of this blessing, may God's face shine upon you. See, that's not a mystical phrase. It's, it's a metaphorical one. In fact, we have a similar phrase that we use today. Uh, if I were to say to you, uh, when, uh, when I got home from a work trip, uh, seeing Allie's face made my face brighten up. Yeah? When the father... When the father looks at his kids, he enjoys them. What it means by enjoyment, what it means to have joy and to find joy in a relationship, it's not that everything else is perfect. It means that I am glad to be with the one I am with. I experienced that in moments of greatest tragedy and grief in my life where I somehow have joy because I'm not going through it alone because I have friends and family and community around me. And even when they fail me, I can have joy in the most gruesome, scary, awful circumstances because the father has not left me, that he still delights in me. His face still shines upon me. And so I can find joy in that abiding relationship with him, regardless of my circumstance. I mean, in a lighter way, this is why it's even better to go to movies with a friend oftentimes. Like you, do you guys ever do this where you go to a movie, but you don't even get dinner before because you're coming right from work or something. And you go to the movie with your friends, you say like two things to them. And then you go and you sit and you're sitting next to them for two hours. And then you leave and you're like, oh, what'd you think? Yeah, that was good. And then you're like gone. (laughs) Why do we do that? Because there's something bonding about a joy moment together, about going together. Not if if you go to movies all by yourselves, that's okay too. That's a totally appropriate thing to do because again, you're still not talking to anybody, but there is something that is beautiful about that joy relationship that you can even experience when nothing else is said. See, when the father looks at his kids, This is what he does. He is radiating his joy to them. And our only response is to enjoy him back. In Jude 25, Jude continues to the only God, our savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He says, God alone is our savior. Now, if you've been to church, that sounds like the right answer, right? God is the savior. Yes, that is the church answer. But do you actually and actively believe that's true in every way of your day? Do you believe that there is somebody else, some other circumstance, some other thing that will fix your life, that can provide peace that seems to elude you, that can quiet the longings of your heart? Do you look at some political leader or celebrity or your bank account or your job or your kids or your spouse or uh, your, your desire for a relationship? Do you look for anything else to effectively save you, to fix you, to satisfy you? Because only God can save you and satisfy you. 
And see, this is what the wandering son had to figure out. And he had to figure it out in one of the one of the saddest ways possible. He had to go off and try to have a good time on his own terms in a far off country. Now, he could have gone, wow, this didn't work so well. All right, I'm gonna keep doing my own thing and figuring it out on my own. And he could have tried that, but he doesn't. Instead, he tries to fix the problem. He strives to fix the problem on his own terms. So he's gonna go back to his dad, but his dad cuts him off uh, and doesn't even let him finish his sentence because he says, the good time you were created for is this one right now. This relationship, this is what you were created for. And I'm throwing a party so we can all celebrate this relationship. But see, an important thing that we need to know about the party is the party that's thrown for us coming back into the family, it wasn't free. It's free for us, but it wasn't free to him. He alone can save us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, Jude says. The brother, think about this. I said the sort of prodigal sons because there are two sons in this story. There's the rebellious son who leaves and there's the other son who stays at home. Now, in the ancient ancient Near Eastern culture, what should have happened is when the younger brother ditched town, the older brother's job was to go after the younger brother, to find him, to restore him, to beg with him, to plead with him, come home. But instead, the brother stayed. He stayed and he didn't stay because he was tr- had a heart of generosity. He stayed because he had a heart of self-righteousness. And so when his brothers returns and the party is thrown, he is moping about in the corner because he wants the, because his brother is getting the attention that he coveted. See, Jesus is the true and better big brother. None of us made our way back to God. And it's not that God just said, mm, your door's always open. Free, feel free to come back in whenever. Stinky clothes and all. Instead, Jesus came to bring us back into the Father's embrace. He was, he, it's the perfect story. It's the perfect story for a vastly imperfect story that the older brother has come for us at the cost of his very own life. So to him belong all the glory. To, to, to be uh, warranted of glory is to be deserving to be made much of. To him belong the majesty, which is the power and the greatness. To him belong dominion. That means ownership rights. And to him belong the authority meaning that he gets to define what is good and bad on his terms, not ours. Before all time and now and forever. In other words, this isn't a recent development. You know, before time, it was before then too. And it will be that way now and it will be that way forever. And so with that, Jude concludes by just writing simply, amen. See, these ancient followers of Jesus were being called to go out and to contend for the faith, to guard the gospel in the life of their community in the midst of false teachers who are doing really bad things to the community. Yeah, Mary's got it. Could you imagine what temptation you would be feeling if you were getting this letter? Would you have been like me, uh, tempted to kind of ignore the problem for a little bit or as long as you could? Or that you're like, let's go, false teachers, I'm going after them. And you're like, I I was just waiting for this letter to come through. This is what I was saying, guys. You know, instead, Jude calls them to press in, not for revenge, 
not to, to pander and try to avoid. He calls them to actively demonstrate mercy and to pursue them, even these false teachers who are doubters and rebellious people, so that they might be, as Jude writes, might be snatched from the fire. Now, does that sound like something that you and I cannot do easily? Not easily at all. In fact, it's impossible. You have no ability to do that on your own terms. You're not strong enough. You're not good enough. But don't, take, don't you feel too bad about it because you're just not God. Now, my kids have good instincts that when things are getting scary, come find mom or dad. And the same was true for this ancient audience. And the same is true for us tonight. That when these false teachers had invaded and made their way into the life of their church, and they're like, what are we going to do? This is scary. What Jude is saying is turn to the Father. When things get scary, when you're filled with doubt, when it feels like you're going to be overtaken, run to dad, look deep into his eyes. It might not immediately make you feel like everything's better, but when you truly know the joy of the father and you see how strong he is, you know it's all going to work out. When the path gets scary, stay close to him. When you don't feel like you have the strength to forgive or to love or to speak, to speak in grace and truth, you look to the one whose face is shining upon you. Now, during the first week of the series, we talked about a quote that I'll paraphrase quickly uh, from Charles Spurgeon. It's from about 200 years ago. And he says, how do you defend a lion who is in a cage? And he says, simply put, you don't. You open the door and you let him do his thing. See, we guard the gospel by keeping our eyes focused on the one who guards us. Jesus doesn't need your protection. You need his. Tonight, we're going to take time to actively set our focus on him. And what we're going to, uh, on him, the one who is our guard, who is our defender, who is our healer, and is even our friend. And we're going to do this by meditating on scripture together. And so what we're going to do is we're going to create a slightly different environment for the next few minutes. And what I mean by meditating on scripture is not transcendental meditation, also known as Eastern meditation oftentimes. That type of meditation is focused on the emptying of self. The type of meditation that you've discovered in the Bible is about filling yourself up with the truth of God's words. This is an ancient practice that is in fact how the vast majority of the scriptures were meant to be read in the first place. Now, if this is a new practice for you or you don't, you wouldn't say that you follow Jesus and you don't know much about him, then know that you are invited to participate in all of this, but feel no awkwardness to simply observe. That could be totally appropriate as well. So we're going to meditate on this doxology passage now. And so how we're going to do this is I'm going to invite you to go ahead and close your eyes. And as I speak, I'm going to um, give some questions or some concepts and prayer prompts throughout for just the next few minutes. And so what I would like for you to do, go ahead and get into a comfortable position. Take a deep breath in through your nose. And out through your mouth. In through your nose. through your mouth. Now, 
to him. Who is he? It's easy to have an image of God in our minds of our own making. What's he like in your mind? Does he seem like an emotionally distant father, an abusive one? A father who allows you to do whatever you want without any boundaries or barriers? A father who never comes home? The Bible shares much about the character and nature of our father. That he is infinite. That he has no beginning and no end. He never changes. He has no needs. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is always everywhere. He is wise. He is faithful. He is not safe. He is not tame. And yet, with him there is no safer place. He is infinitely and perfectly good. He is just. He is merciful and kind. He is gracious and forgiving. He is love. He draws near to the desperate, to the brokenhearted. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. To stumble is a part of the human condition. Like a toddler stumbling as they learn to walk and then run. Stumble. Imagine God in your mind's eye as he truly is a good father who desires to take us by the hand and guide us. And that even when we stumble, we are safe. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Like the faraway son who journeyed on his own, but was welcomed back into the family. Each of us daily are given the opportunity to abide in a safe, loving attachment with our Father. And just when we imagine that his face would be covered in disappointment, instead, because we came home, his face is shining on us. Our Father, who has the only right to condemn He looks at you with eyes of love. He covers you with the blameless righteousness of Jesus. Imagine the face of your heavenly father.
making his face to shine upon you. If you're beginning to feel the warmth of that joy, of that gaze, that is simply a foretaste of what it is to fully rest in his joy and to enjoy him in return. To the only God, our Savior, how have you been trying to save yourself or looking to someone else to save you recently? Just as God alone has the right to condemn us, God alone also has the right and the power to save us. The cosmic force that created all things and now holds all things together is a good dad who has come to save you. Out of pure love, he cares. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God didn't save us by sending in an army or someone else for a rescue operation. Instead, he sent his own son, fully God, embodying human flesh to redeem and restore you. Just to then be elevated back from humanity to lordship. To call Jesus your Lord is to consider him your master. That you are no longer the master of your own destiny, your own fate, your own life. But see, the one who has earned the right to call the shots in your life is also capable of making good and right and beautiful things in you and through you. the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. He is absolutely glorious. And yet we are invited to participate in glorifying him. We get to make much of him. So let's take a few moments now to pray for God to give you the capacity to make much of him. Spend a few moments glorifying him for what he has done.
these words begin the scroll of Genesis, and they give us the first window into our creator, our sustainer. He always was and is and always will be. Take a moment to ponder and pray and consider the vastness of God. Before we close, let's take a moment to simply express thanks to God. Not for what he has done, but simply for who he is. able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty dominion and authority before all time and now and forever.